0: Turn with me tonight one more time to the book of Philippians and tonight to its final fourteen verses. So Philippians chapter four, verses ten through twenty three. Father, as we come to Tonight, to the end of this encouraging book, this encouraging letter from the pen of Paul, I pray that you'd encourage us once more by your great power to accomplish your purposes, by your great glory in accomplishing your purposes, and by showing us that we have a great part in seeing those purposes accomplished in the world. Help us tonight. Teach us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been studying this book of Philippians for several weeks now, and we have said a few times along the way that Paul's letter to the church at Philippi is, among other things, a kind of thank you note. In the very first chapter, in fact, Paul tells the Philippians that whenever he prays for them, he thanks the Lord for their church. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul is grateful to God for his brothers and sisters in Philippi, and he's grateful in specific, he says, for their participation in the gospel, verse 5, for their pitching in towards the spread of the good news about Jesus. And that pitching in toward the advance of the good news surely had multiple layers to it. Surely the Philippians preached the good news themselves in their own community, and surely they prayed for those who preached it and who suffered for it around the world. And no doubt the Philippians also contributed to the advance of the gospel by their own testimony, their own godly living, which made them appear as lights in the world. So there are many ways for a church and for individual Christians to participate in the gospel, to contribute to its spread and advance. But tonight in chapter 4, as Paul really gets into the thank you portion of this letter, he makes it clear that he's especially grateful for how the Philippians' participation in the gospel has had a financial element to it. In the passage that's before us this evening, chapter 4, verses 10 through 23, we will hear the words of a grateful missionary who has received yet another monetary gift from his Christian friends back in Philippi. And I want you to read what he says to them about that. Verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full And have an abundance, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, to our God and Father, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. One of the ways the Philippian church participated in the gospel, one of the ways they contributed to the advance of Christ's name and his kingdom was to financially support a man whose calling it was to preach that name and to preach that kingdom as his life's work. One of the ways they contributed to the gospel, they participated in the gospel, was to ensure that Paul's needs were taken care of so that he could go on living and doing what God had called him to do. In this case, the support they sent was to keep him afloat actually during a time of imprisonment so that even there he might survive and might go on speaking for Jesus, even, verse 14, in his affliction. Now, as I say, this surely wasn't the only way that the Philippians pitched in toward the spread of the good news, but it was one way, and it was an important one at that, and it remains important today. It is necessary today, and it is a blessing today when missionaries and pastors and other full-time Christian Workers are connected with faithful, supporting churches and individuals in the matter of giving and receiving, as Paul puts it here. And so I just want us to think tonight about giving and receiving in the gospel and draw out some principles from this passage concerning giving and receiving, concerning gospel generosity, concerning gospel generosity, particularly with those people whose life is dedicated to the gospel. But before we draw out those points about giving, I want us also to notice that Paul has something to teach us here about contentment as well. There's something to learn for those who are giving to the gospel and to the gospel workers, but there's something also to learn about contentment. In verse 10, you'll see there, and we read, that Paul begins to make mention of the Philippians' most recent gift and how it rejoices his heart. But before he finishes discussing their gift, he interrupts himself in verses 11 through 13 to let them know that he would actually be content even without the financial security that their gift has brought. Without it all being ungrateful for what they've done, Paul wants the Philippians to know that he has not been sitting in his jail cell wringing his hands because it's been so long since he received a check from Philippi. He does not speak from want, he says. Rather, he is content whether donations come in or not. And I want us just to begin with Paul's contentment there and draw out some lessons regarding it. Lessons regarding contentment, just from verses 11 through 13. I see at least three facets uh, that are worth pointing out here concerning contentment. The first is simply that contentment, for Paul is not based on circumstances. Contentment is not based on circumstances. I've learned to be content, he says in verse 11, in whatever circumstances I am. In whatever circumstances, I've learned to be content. In other words, Paul is not like the man in Luke chapter 12, who, because he has many goods laid up for years to come, can now sit back and take his ease. Now he can be content because he finally has his nest egg built up. He's finally financially secure. Not so with the apostle. I've learned to be content, he says, even when I'm not financially secure. I've learned to be content In whatever circumstances I am, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So the Philippians have sent him a gift, and he's thankful for that, and he's going to come back to that, but he wants to say, first of all, even without the gift, I'm content. And with the gift, I'm content. Whether I'm rich or poor, I'm content. Whether I'm empty or full, I'm content. Whether I shop at Goodwill or at Macy's, I'm content. Whether I eat oatmeal or filet mignon or whether I ever eat at all, I'm content. That's true contentment. It's not based on our circumstances. Paul does not say, if I only had X, then all would be well. If we could only arrange for Y then we could really rest content. No, he says, I've learned to be content whatever, in whatever circumstances I am. Contentment is not about having enough. Contentment is about trusting God and being happy in Him, whether you have enough or not. And I wonder if you possess this Christian virtue of contentment. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs called it the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And it is that. It's a jewel. It's a precious jewel to be content. But like most precious jewels, contentment is all too often a rare one. I find myself struggling with it. And I wonder if you do too, contentment. I wonder if you find yourself saying or thinking or daydreaming, if we only had that, if I could only go there, if she would only act like this, then, then I would be able to sit back and take my ease and rest content. Now, those statements generally aren't actually even true, are they? Because when we finally get what we thought we wanted, we usually just transfer our discontentment to some other perceived lack, don't we? The if-only statements are generally not true. And even if they were true, it wouldn't make them right, would it? Is it right for us who have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Is it right for us who have been washed in his blood, who are called the children of God, and who at all times possess actually exactly what God has deemed best for us? Is it right for us to live our lives saying, if only? I preach this to myself as much as to anyone else. Rather than if only, better that we can say with the apostle, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Contentment is not based on circumstances. But then there's a second lesson concerning contentment, and this one from verse 12 particularly. Namely, contentment is necessary even in times of prosperity. Contentment is necessary even in times of of prosperity. Listen carefully to what Paul says in verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now, we might expect Paul to say, I know how to get along with humble means, right? And we might expect him to say, I've learned the secret of going hungry and suffering need. We expect him to say those things because those are the times that most obviously seem to call for contentment. But Paul also says that there's a secret to being filled and having abundance and still being content. There is a need to learn and practice contentment even when you have enough. Or too much. Even when the barns are full, you need contentment. There's a secret to it, he says. What is that secret? He doesn't say for sure, but perhaps part of the secret, as we already alluded to, is that when God does satisfy a need or a desire or a want, that we rest content with his provision and give him great thanks rather than immediately saying to ourselves, okay, Now that I've got that checked off the list, I'll really be content if I can get this. Sometimes we're like the spoiled children at a birthday party, right? Who tear into their presence one right after the other and scarcely have time to enjoy them, maybe even look at them, not to speak of saying thank you for them, because they have to immediately find out what else they can get their hands on. You've seen this, haven't you? And we can be that way with God and with his gifts, can we not? just so eager to get to what else can you give me that we're not content with what he's given and so there is a need for contentment a need to curb our thirst for more even and maybe especially sometimes when god slakes that thirst i've learned the secret of being filled paul says there is a secret to it there is something that has to be learned In this regard. And maybe another aspect of that secret might simply be this to learn when your basket is overflowing, not to base your contentment on what's in the basket. To learn when your basket is overflowing, not to base your contentment on what's in the basket. Not to be content because you have enough. Because full refrigerators and rainy day funds and investment accounts may not always be our portion. And if we are going to find ourselves content when those things are empty, then we had better learn to not place our hope in them, to not draw our contentment from them even when they're full. Our contentment must be in the promises and the provision of God, not in the number of commas in our bank statements. Because as some of you know, those commas can disappear quickly. And therefore, contentment is necessary. Even in times of prosperity, even when the bank account is full and the basket is overflowing, we need to learn the secret of contentment. And then let me mention one more lesson in contentment, this time from verse 13. Contentment comes from God. Contentment comes from God. Isn't that what Paul says in verse 13? He's just finished saying that he knows how to be content when his belly is filled and when it's empty, when he has an abundance, and when he suffers need. And now, concerning his ability to be content in any and every circumstance, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's the answer to the secret, right? How can I be content in any and every circumstance? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, sometimes we hear athletes or other people quote these words concerning overcoming injuries or the ability to score touchdowns or to endure to the finish line I can do all things through him who strengthens me and they have Philippians 4.13 written on the side of their shoes Uh, and it's true that if we do any of these things, if we score touchdowns or run races or overcome adversity if you do well on a project at work or on a test at school, it is because of him who strengthens you but Philippians 4.13, in its context, refers to contentment with potentially difficult financial circumstances. And it was written by a man who was imprisoned for preaching Jesus, and who has learned to trust God, whether he knows where the next meal is coming from or not. And that is, I dare say, a little more difficult to do, even than throwing touchdown passes. And so, yes... Let's give God the credit for all of our victories, but let's also understand the real seriousness and the context of this verse. How can Paul rest content when he doesn't even always have enough food to eat? How is he content with going hungry? Most of us can scarcely stand to miss a single meal, right? And yet here's Paul, bound with chains, not sure what the officials might do to him, often hungry, apparently, not sure if or when one of his supporting churches may remember him, and he says that he's content in the midst of it all. And not only that, but when he does have an abundance, he's content then too and doesn't become greedy. What an amazingly strong Christian Paul must have been, right? Evidently so. But that's not where Paul puts the credit, is it? He does not say, I can do all things because I'm an experienced missionary and I've been through this before. He does not say, I can do all things because I'm so consecrated to the Lord. And he doesn't say, I can do all things because I have an iron will that allows me to press on and set my jaw no matter what. All of that may have been true of Paul, but the strength, he says, is not in Paul, it's in God. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is like Joseph, who was credited by Pharaoh for his ability to interpret dreams. And Joseph's reply was simply, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It is not in me, God. And that has to be our response as well, right? It is not in me, God. I can do all things through him. And whatever contentment I do show is his doing, not my own. Contentment comes from God. So three lessons from Paul's sidebar on contentment. Contentment is not based on circumstances, verse 11. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Contentment is necessary even in times of prosperity, verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And contentment comes from God, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And yet, while Paul was certainly content, even without the gift from Philippi, he is absolutely rejoicing now that it's come in. He's blessed by their gift. He's grateful for their gift. And he has a good bit to say about their gift. And so let's turn our attention now to that aspect of this passage. Let's listen to what Paul says about the Philippians' gift to their missionary and then draw several brief lessons concerning Christian giving concerning generosity like that of the Philippians, generosity towards the cause of Christ, towards the work of the gospel. I'm going to give you eight such lessons from this passage, and we'll move through most of them fairly quickly. One, gospel giving brings joy to those who receive it gospel giving brings joy to those who receive it verse 10 but i rejoiced in the lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me so yes paul is content without money in the bank and even without adequate food on the table but he rejoices when the money finally comes in and both of those things can be true side by side can't they We can be content without certain things and yet extremely happy when God provides them. Isn't that so? And so it was with those, so it is with those who, like Paul, are full-time gospel workers. When they receive a gift from a church or from an individual, especially an incredibly timely one like the one Paul received from Philippi while he was in jail, when they receive a gift like that, there is great thanksgiving and rejoicing. And that joy, as I suspect was the case with Paul, that joy is not always just that there is now a little bit of money in the bank and a little more food on the table and a little more flexibility for certain gospel projects. That joy is also, and maybe more so, because the preacher or the missionary family is reminded by the gift that they are actually loved. Paul doesn't seem as concerned about the money in verse 10 as he does about the fact that the money showed that the Philippians still cared. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. He's moved because they care. And the same will be true for those whom you and I support in their gospel ministry. Our monetary help, especially as it shows our genuine concern for them, will cause them to rejoice in the Lord greatly. So let's continue to give to our missionaries and give them that pleasure. Gospel giving brings joy to those who receive it. Secondly, gospel giving is not always as widespread as we might think. Gospel giving is not always as widespread as we might think. Verse 15 You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Isn't it surprising to you that even the great apostle, the greatest missionary that ever was, seemed to suffer from lack of missionary support? Couldn't seem to get up to 100%? After I left, left Macedonia, he says, No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. That's sad to me. And I hope it's sad to you, too. Not just for Paul, but that any missionary or any Christian worker, any pastor who is genuinely called by the Lord and who is faithful to his or her calling and is doing the Lord's work should have to scrape by like Paul evidently had sometimes to do. Now, yes, it taught him to be content even when he was hungry, but let's not force our missionaries to learn contentment that way. Let's not presume that they are warmed and filled. Let's not always presume that they have plenty of other folks supporting them, because sometimes they do not. Sometimes it's just a little remnant, as it was for Paul at times. Just as an FYI, two of our missionary families at present are still struggling to reach 100% of their monthly support, and some of us might be able, like the Philippians, to step in to that gap. So let us always keep in mind that gospel giving is not always as widespread as we might think. Thirdly, gospel giving stores up treasures in heaven. Gospel giving stores up treasures in heaven. I think that's what Paul has in mind in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Again, Paul is grateful for the gift the Philippians sent and grateful, verse 16, that they have done so more than once. But he's also keen to remind them that one of the reasons he's so grateful is not for the gift's sake itself, as though Paul just loved the Philippians for their money. No, he's grateful for their gift. He commends them for it. He's excited about it because when they give, God adds that gift to their own accounts. It goes into his account. But it goes into their accounts as well. And I think the accounts that he's talking about are the treasures that Jesus says we may store up in heaven. Now, of course, we don't earn heaven by giving to our missionaries or our preachers. Heaven is a gift of God's grace granted to us through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. But once we've been given that grace, once we've been given the guarantee of heaven by faith in Jesus, we can store up treasures there. And one of the ways we can do so is by our financial participation in the gospel, by our giving to the local church, by our generosity with the missionaries, by our support of other gospel laborers and laborers. You put money in your account that way, so to speak. Now, that's not to say when you get to heaven, one of the angels is going to meet you at the gate and hand you a briefcase filled with $100 bills equivalent to all your gospel generosity on earth. But there will be rewards not least the reward of human souls worshiping around God's throne who are one to Jesus partly because you financially enabled a missionary to come preach Jesus in their village that will be a reward gospel giving increases the profit to your account it stores up treasures in heaven and then fourthly we learn here that gospel giving quite simply supplies needs. Verse 18, gospel giving supplies needs, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. I am amply supplied. That's perhaps the most obvious and the most basic thing that can be said about generosity towards the Lord's work. It simply ensures that pastors, missionaries, other Christian workers can say, I am amply supplied. I have what I need. Thank you. In Paul's case, it sounds in verse 12 like one immediate need that needed to be supplied may have been something as basic as food. And if this is the same imprisonment that we read about at the end of the book of Acts where Paul's under a kind of house arrest in his own rented quarters, then the Philippians' gift may have also helped to pay his rent for a season. And, you know, those are the same sort of mundane things, as unspiritual as they may sound, that every Christian worker needs today, right? Food, housing, clothing, and so on. My family has food on the table and clothes on our backs and beds to sleep in and a roof over our heads because you all give to the cause of the gospel in this place. Thank you for doing that. In some ways, gospel giving is really just that straightforward. We do it simply to meet the needs of those who set aside other gainful employment in order to focus their efforts on the work of the gospel. We meet their needs so that they can say, I am amply supplied. And, of course, this kind of supply matters for more direct ministry needs as well. Paul's missionary travel expenses, the upkeep of our church building, gospel literature that we make available, and so on. Gospel giving, quite simply, meets needs, and therefore we should do it. Fifthly, gospel giving is pleasing to God gospel giving is pleasing to God. Verse 18 again, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. What a splendid reason to be generous toward gospel laborers and laborers, simply because it pleases the Lord. In fact, this may be the greatest of all motivations for generosity toward the Lord's work. The knowledge that our gifts, like the sacrifices of old, arise as a fragrant aroma before God's throne. Just an illustration. Let's say, men, that you give your wife a bouquet of flowers. You don't do that, first of all, for you, do you? You do it because it will make her smile, because it will bring joy to her day. Now, you yourself may get a good bit of enjoyment out of the flowers, too. Maybe the colors will brighten your day. Perhaps the scent of roses will be as pleasing to you as it is to her. And it's not unmanly, as an aside, to admit if that's the case, if you like flowers. But even if you enjoy the flowers, fellas, your primary reason for purchasing them is to make her happy, is it not? So long as those stems and petals provide a fragrant aroma for her... You are happy, and so it is with our giving to God's work. Our highest joy in giving to the Lord's work might not actually be the rewards that accrue to our accounts, but simply the opportunity to make our Lord smile. Yes, we ourselves get a great deal out of the giving, as we've been saying, and as we're about to see once again in the next point. But the fact that our gifts please the Lord, well, that's even all the better. I have received... "...everything in full and have an abundance, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God." So that's the fifth thing: Gospel giving pleases God. Sixthly, gospel giving comes with a promise. In verse 19, gospel giving comes with a promise— And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, this is another verse, like verse 13, that we might be tempted sometimes to just pluck up and quote by itself as God's promise for any and every situation. And that's not the end of the world if we do that, I suppose, because for those who truly belong to the Lord, God will supply all our needs. But... As with verse 13, it's helpful to notice the context in which Paul says what he says. He praises the Philippians for their generosity in verses 15 and 16. And he tells them in verse 18 how it's been helpful to him. And he tells them at the end of verse 18 how it pleases the Lord. And it is in that context of God being pleased with the Philippians' generosity that Paul issues this promise, "'My God will supply all your needs.'" As om, almost as if to say, God is going to supply all your needs because you have been so generous to his cause. God's going to meet your needs because you've been willing to give of your means for the gospel. And it's the same basic idea that we hear from Jesus in Luke 6.38. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And Paul himself, writing about gifts to Christian mercy ministry, speaks along the same lines in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And I think you see the point. God will not allow your Christian generosity to bankrupt you. If you give to his work, whether it's feeding the poor or supporting the ministers, God will make sure that your needs are met, verse 19. That's the kind of God he is. Now, be careful here. Neither Jesus nor Paul nor your pastor are teaching the prosperity gospel. The idea is not that, boy, if you'll just give to the church and support the missionaries, you'll be driving a Jaguar by the end of the year. Now, the point is, if you choose not to drive the Jaguar so that you can give that money to missions or to the suffering saints— then you can trust that God will keep your little Chevy chugging on for just a few more years. That's the point. God does not promise to make you rich, but he does certify here in his own word that he will meet the needs of those who are generous with his work. My God will supply all your needs, Paul says. And over in 2 Corinthians 9, which I mentioned, where Paul speaks of God blessing those who sow bountifully and Loving a cheerful giver. In that passage, Paul says that when you give, God will, will multiply your means somehow, and he'll do so bountifully, not so that you can bask in the bounty, but that God will multiply what you have. If you give to his cause, he'll multiply what you have so that you can continue to give to his cause. So this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. Give to God and he'll make you rich. This is give to God and he'll make sure that all your needs are met and he'll make sure that you'll have money to keep on giving. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Gospel giving comes with a promise. Seventh, gospel giving should reverberate to the glory of God. Our giving to God's work should reverberate to his glory. Now, it's fitting, isn't it, that after all these words about the Philippians and their generosity, that Paul should follow up with the words of verse 20. Now, to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, the commentators, Peter... O'Brien and Ralph Martin and J.A. Bingle, whom Martin cites, all of them point out rightly, I think, that Paul's outburst of praise here in verse 20 is probably his conclusion to all that he said in this entire letter. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever for all the truth that I've been writing about in these last four chapters. That's the point. To God be the glory that he always finishes the good work he begins in his people, chapter 1, verse 6. To God be the glory that he even used Paul's imprisonment to advance the gospel, chapter 1, verse 12. To God be the glory that he sent his son, chapter 2, to take on the form of a bondservant and to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To God be the glory for exemplary Christian workers like Timothy and Epaphroditus. To God be the glory that he grants his believing people a righteousness that is not their own, chapter 3. To God be the glory that he's granted us citizenship in heaven, chapter 3, verse 20. To God be the glory for the promise of peace in the midst of anxiety, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. To God be the glory tonight for Paul's contentment in any and every circumstance. To our God... And Father be the glory forever and ever. For all of these things, He is the one who has brought them about. He is the one who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He is the one who strengthens me, Paul says, and He is the one, therefore, to whom belongs the glory. And as that is true for all that Paul has said in this letter, so it is certainly true in this point about the Philippians' generosity. The Philippians have been generous, and Paul praises them for it. But ultimately, as with everything else in this letter, so with the generosity of the saints to God, to our God, and Father, be the glory forever and ever. He is the one who has made you what you are, Philippians. He is the one who has given you the means for generosity. He is the one who's given you the heart for generosity. He is the one who's given you a gospel in the first place so that the preachers and the missionaries whom you support have good news to proclaim. And so he who gave all these things must be the one to receive the praise. To our God and Father be the glory. And you let that be the banner over all of your generosity towards the Lord's work and towards the Lord's workers. It is not in me. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that sounds like it should be the end of the letter, doesn't it? And the end of the sermon. But as he does elsewhere, Paul actually signs off now with some final greetings and some well wishes. And the greeting that Paul passes along in verse 22 is tantalizing, isn't it? All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. You get the weight of what Paul is saying there? Among those Christians with whom he is having fellowship while he is imprisoned, among those who are perhaps coming to visit him to hold Bible study or to minister to his needs or to bring him food, there are some folks from the emperor's own household some of Caesar's own servants, or maybe some of Caesar's own family, have come to Christ and have befriended the Apostle Paul. That's one reason why, although Paul never says exactly where he is in prison, many people believe it was quite likely in Rome, because Paul is mingling with folks from the emperor's household. And there's a good possibility that Paul himself may have won some of them to Christ. That's what John Piper seemed to think as I listened to him recently on the book of Philippians, that these members of Caesar's household have come to faith through Paul's own witness. Perhaps Paul's very imprisonment, Piper suggested, has given him the inroad that was needed in order to get to them and share Jesus with them. After all, Paul did say in chapter 1, didn't he, that his situation had been noised about through the whole Praetorian Guard. And maybe it was noised about in the imperial palace as well. Here's what Piper said about verse 22. Quote, To draw attention to Caesar's household in the next to the last verse is glorious. Now quoting Paul, You see me, your beloved apostle, sitting in a prison in Rome possibly going to be beheaded by this horribly wicked Caesar named Nero, here's what I want you to see. God infiltrated me into the center of imperial power, and I am plundering his house. Caesar's family is coming to Jesus. King Jesus, to whom every knee will bow, is already getting his subjects from the Roman emperor's family, end of quote. And that causes me to say one more thing about the kind of generosity that the Philippians showed and that we must show to those who proclaim Christ. Namely, number eight, gospel giving works. Gospel giving works. When you and I participate in the gospel, whether we pray for gospel advance whether we adorn the gospel with our godly behavior, whether we proclaim the gospel with our own lips, and when we give to those who do so is their life's work. When we give so that people like Paul can do what they do, God plunders not only Caesar's household, but Satan's as well. How so? Well, when we give, the word of God goes forth, doesn't it? And when the word of God goes forth, Isaiah fifty-five eleven, it never returns to him empty. When the word of God goes forth, it always accomplishes what God has sent it out to do. And so when the word goes forth, people will be saved. And the kingdoms and peoples of this world who may today be so opposed to Christ will see their subjects one by one coming to bow the knee to King Jesus and confessing with their tongues that he is Lord. Some of them will be your neighbor's who will be one through the means of little churches like this one, whom you faithfully support. Others of them will be one in China or Brazil or Central Asia or Ethiopia or Zambia because we supported missionaries in those places. And like those believers from Caesar's household, these folks who are one to Christ will someday greet you in the name of the Lord. If not in this life, then certainly in that next one. Jesus has already, Revelations 5 9, Jesus has already purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And they will come in. They will come and worship around his throne. The gospel and those who go about preaching it will be successful. They will gather the Lord's harvest both in our neighborhoods and among the nations. The plan is foolproof, it will not fail. And so investing in this great mission is one of the wisest things you can ever do with your time and your energy and, yes, even with your money, because the return is guaranteed. Gospel giving works. And now you are left simply to go and do it and to do all that the Lord has taught us through the pen of Paul in these recent weeks. So go now and do it, confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Go now and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Go and serve the God of the Philippians and be generous with his cause. And as you do so, verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.